you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Arc Russell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out later this year for all your eyeballs to take it in. I'm Liz Manichel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features and currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. But this week, we welcome filmmaker Talia Lugasi to the show to talk about her journey as a filmmaker. She talks a little bit about making her first feature, Descent, starring Rosaria Dawson, and how she got to her second feature, This Is Not a War Story. After that, we discuss an article from our guest, Talia Lugasi, which is actually what inspired us trying to get her on the show. And it's all about how she restructured her crew to make the film. And we actually also read a listener email after so many months of not sharing listener emails. So that's pretty exciting. But Alric, how are, how, how's your life? How are you feeling? Uh, I'm okay. I'm uh, going through the delivery process on my movie right now. And to this morning, I had delivered like what is like the final, final files for, you know, the QC house to QC. And I thought I did it all right, but then I did it all wrong. I... <laughs> Because they have all these requirements. It's like 10 tracks of audio for this, and then they want all the stems, and then they want all this in stereo as well. And so I had everything organized, but then, you know, they emailed me this morning, and they're like, hey, so we wanted that all, like, linked onto the QuickTime file. And I'm like, what? You didn't say that you wanted it linked on the QuickTime file. And then, of course, like, I looked, read the fine print, and then, of course, it is there in the <laughs> middle. And then it's like all this other stuff that I didn't do that I was like, oh, wait, you wanted me to do that too? What? I have to do this? Ah, so I'm just like kind of going through all this like crazy, like realizing like how I screwed up and, you know, figuring out how to fix it. And I think we've solved it mostly where they can do the job with what they have. I had to send them two files through the internet that I didn't give them properly. Yeah, feels like it's okay. But it's just like, man, delivering a movie is hard, man. And it's harder, like international asks for so much more than domestic. And it's like, I'm doing the international right now. And then I got domestic coming in, coming up right after. And I'm like trying to juggle them both. And my head is beginning to spin, and I'm like, wow, I really wonder if I'll ever have post-supervisor do this for me, or if this is going to be <laughs> gonna be it for my future as a filmmaker. Yeah, it's yeah. worth the fee. It's worth the fee to work with the post house sometimes. <laughs> I don't got the money, Liz. I don't have the money. <laughs> All the money was spent on visual effects and everything else. All the extra, you know, that's why I edited the movie, because it's like we had no money for yeah. this. But maybe next time we will have the money for this, because it would be definitely nice not to have to be the one responsible. Although, on the other hand, it's like, I'm the director, so it's like, I can be as nitpicky and insane as I want with every little detail, which I have been. So, I don't know. Anyways, I just can't wait till it's over. It's going to be all over by the end of the month, and then I won't have to worry about this. All I have to worry about is press, which will be a whole other thing, which it will be fun to do. <laughs> but yeah, how, how are you doing, Liz? Right, have you recovered? from? I know you had a, quite a crazy travel situation getting back from the holidays yeah american airlines lost my checked luggage and my son's checked luggage so for like two days i was just like what if this is it <laughs> what if i never see these items again it's weird i'm not a very materialistic person i really i wear the same thing over and over again i don't go shopping but there were a few things in those luggages in that baggage where i was just like oh no i, I would like that back and as soon as I took the initiative and went down to Burbank Airport myself and figured it out, I felt whole again. So I am a materialistic person. I really wanted to be rejoined and reunited with my things. So yesterday was just a really nice day of unpacking and like hugging my jean jacket and then hugging my jean jacket again because I really missed it. 
what else is happening? We're doing visual effects for the short. I have a new title for the short, which is really exciting. It was at a really bad title for months. It was called Halloween Masks. And I came to the title. It's now called Witchy. So we have a film called Witchy. And we're doing visual nice. effects. We're doing sound. We're doing music. And then I guess the thing I wanted to bring up is that just before we got on the call, I just decided to post all the projects I'm in development on as a pinned tweet on Twitter. And I was like, <laughs> why not? Why not? Like, just do it. Just put it out there. And then I wrote on the tweet, let me know if you're interested in investing. Like, nothing's going to happen of it. Why would any investor be like, oh, Liz, I read your tweets and I would love to give you money and, and invest in your career. But I thought like, why not? This is a public forum. Shoot your shot. So I'm shooting my shot on Twitter this week. Okay. I was going to ask you if like it already re re returned somebody reaching out, but I guess that hasn't happened yet. It was 10 minutes ago. No. So <laughs> no. Let us know if it does work. I will be copying you. Yeah. In the future. Might be trendy. Well, I, I found investors through my newsletter. So I was thinking like, well, this is kind of an extension of a newsletter, right? It's like, these are people who are vested interests, just like I follow certain people and I'm like interested in what they're doing. So it's like, well, maybe it's, pro it's probably foolish, but I'm just, I'm just doing it. So that's my life. Wh what do you think? You already have responses. So, you know, oh, do I? <laughs> yeah. Someone called you a damn supernova. So, oh, oh uh, that's not good. No. Did you hear about screenwriter Twitter last week? I was following some of the stuff on screen on, on Twitter, but I, I didn't really understand what the deal was. People were upset. I only know very little details, but, but people were upset about someone. And I think they were not, not a very good person. And the clue to that person's identity was the word supernova. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Well, and what was, what was their, what did they do? Look, I couldn't get all the information. I saw that possibly it might have to do with sexual abuse. So oh, it was okay. like outside of just like drama complaining about Ridley Scott or something. It was like real I crappy saw some, stuff. I saw some guy respond and say like, you know, thanks for the support. It's been a tough week, you know, and like all these things that people are saying aren't true, blah, blah, blah. And then a bunch of people like, like, you're one of the good guys. How can anyone put your name through the mud? You're a great person, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wait, what? What? So this is what's going on here. And I couldn't find what they were yeah. talking about on Twitter. Like I couldn't find the original tweet that was like right. referencing. So I don't know what's going on. Maybe these are two separate <laughs> things that Twitter, you know, totally I don't about know. Talking about, but I don't Most know. Most of screenwriting drama that I read was a bunch of people trying to figure out what the screenwriting drama was. It was like all the tweets were like, who are you talking about? I don't my DMs are open. Please tell me what's going on. Like, I never got anything definitive either. So it might have been nothing. Like, this Corbin might have been absolutely nothing. Yeah, I don't know. Very interesting. And that was... Screenwriter Twitter is very interesting because then there, there was, like, somebody who was, like, shitting on a writer the other day and they were, like, saying, like, oh, yeah, like, because they, they, they're supposed to be a great writer, but then they ended up writing WandaVision. Ugh. And then, like, all these other screenwriters being like, yeah, that's not, like, a burn. Like, it's, WandaVision's <laughs> great. And this writer is great. Like, how could you burn this person? I was like, wow. Screenwriting Twitter, like, I don't know, dude. Like, there's some crazy shit going on in there that I don't even understand. And I'm like, why would you burn on somebody who's, like, successful for no reason? <laughs> it's I remember, weird. remember listening to someone use the phrase screenwriter Twitter. And I was like, is there another Twitter that I go to to get to screenwriter Twitter? I was like, what is the pathway to get there? I didn't realize it's just a bunch of people talking about writing and that we collectively have decided to call it ourselves 
screenwriter Twitter or screenwriting Twitter. We've invented a club. I thought it was really appropriate that you said it like that because I haven't really thought of it that way. But like, yeah, it'd just be like all these writers talking about the same thing. And like, they're all friendly. Like, they all seem to know each other. And they're like, yeah, this guy. Yeah, we're all pals here. It's like, oh, the screenwriter nexus of Twitter. (laughs) Interesting. Fun. Do you know what else is fun, Ulrich? What's fun? What's fun? (laughs) Patreon. Patreon's fun. Don't forget to support us on Patreon, everyone, because we have some news because we actually have some amazing new generous backers. We want to celebrate the birthday of Adam Troy, our newest patron on Patreon. Adam Troy is a hero to all. And as a reminder, if you give to our Patreon, we like to, in our very weird little way, we're celebrating you by saying it's your birthday today. So happy birthday, Adam. Thank you so much for all the love. If you want to join Adam in a birthday shenanigan celebration, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast is where you would go. Yeah. Happy birthday, Adam. And also, thank you for supporting my film, The Alternate, a couple years ago on, you know, Seed and Spark. You're the best. Adam Troy. So I knew, know he's been a longtime listener because I remember him from that. I know I remember him from before that too. So Adam, thanks for being with us, sticking with us for a while. And yeah, happy birthday. But another thing for Patreon patrons only. We've got the AMA coming up. It's on January 17th. That's a week from today, a week from today at 2.30 p.m. Pacific time. We'll be giving away a big prize from our newest sponsor, Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues, which is different than most of the other places that you go to find all this stuff. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, or global brands like DJI. They even offer customized plans to fit your needs, and they focus on working with composers on an exclusive basis. So the tracks that you find here, you won't hear popping up on all the other platforms. So make sure to join our Patreon for more info on the AMA and to submit your questions for the same AMA, and then, of course, to learn more about Jambox.io. And finally, we have another partner, and that's the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer. We wanted to encourage you to head on over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. And if you want to become an ISA Connect member, use our code MMIH2021, which is an old code, but it works until January 15th, and you'll get a $20 discount. But without any more further delay, here's our chat with Talia Lugasi. So, Talia Lugasi, can you give us the elevator pitch for This Is Not A War Story? Oh, yikes. The elevator pitch. Okay. Yeah. It's a hybrid narrative. So, a combination of scripted fiction and real elements, real actors, people portraying themselves. And, you know, collaboration with, with combat veterans and telling a story concerned with trauma and suicidal ideation and, and ways of learning to, to live with those things. How many days did you shoot the film? 38 over a course of nine months. What was the rough budget that you can talk about? I can tell you it's under 500000 Okay. I want to press it. Then, I want to press it so badly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take what I can get. How did you come up with the idea? Well, through a process of, of pulling on the threads of, uh, of a script that I was writing alone at first, which was strictly concerned with with suicidal ideation, I was writing these characters I had in, in my mind. And as I, I kind of traversed who they were and what they were about, I came across 
the plight of combat veterans and their suicide epidemic. When I found that, I felt very connected to it, although I didn't know anyone directly who, you know, yet who had gone through this. I contacted, you know, people in that community. And over the course of a very long time, I, I kind of immersed myself in, in them and what they do and got to know them and, and kind of built the script and the story with them. So it was very much a kind of civilian veteran collaboration, finding the common ground where it comes to, to trauma and learning how to, to live with it. And I had found their papermaking art that they do. They make paper out of uniforms. And I knew that that had to be in the film in some way. And so we sort of collaborated their art and mine and found a way to make the film. This is not the rapid fire answer you were hoping for, Liz, there. So. <laughs> it's okay. Didn't want to censor you. You talked a little bit about coming up with the idea, but talk about the chronology. How, how long did you spend working on the film from this inception, the, the solo script until now? I, I wrote the solo thing from 2015 to 16. By 2016, I sort of gotten up the, the, the sort of courage and the, and the clarity to start reaching out and I felt on my own that it was warranted. I wasn't going to waste anybody's time. I knew I was serious about it. And I did so with a lot of hesitation because I wasn't sure, you know, how it was going to be received. I wasn't sure that anyone was really going to care. I knew that there, you know, there, these are communities that don't necessarily want to invite outsiders in. So I, I really had to make clear how serious I was about this. And I just basically asked, this is what I'm attempting to do. What does this sound like to you? How does it look? I would show, I would share pages and things like that. And it was a process of reciprocation where, you know, I was encouraged to keep going. So it was built over, you know, I say by the end of, by the end of 2016, I had found the community that I ended up working on the film with. And it was all of 2017 and all of 2018's complete sort of immersion, you know, listening to stories, to going to, to events, going to workshops, understanding the process and, you know, and all of this kind of thing, a daily, daily thing that I was, I was engaged in. You know, and then you shot the film, 20, late 2018-19, and then spent a year editing and then a year in lockdown. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been a few years. Compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? Oh, it's, I mean, it's, you know, of course, in some ways it was the most difficult, but it was also the most fun. I mean, it was, it was very grim for obvious reasons, but the whole way that the film was set up was quite different than my first feature, which was much more traditional. That had a budget of a million dollars and a crew of 40 people and a, a schedule of 24 shoot days. I mean, it's you know, very much more standard kind of configuration. And it was, in a way, very, very difficult to make that one because I was dealing with a whole cadre of, of producers who really were not on the same page with me about what the film was. So everything was, was a fight. Whereas with this, you know, with this film, this is not a war story. It was, you know, a very small crew and all of us in it for the reason that we wanted to see the film made much more equality going on in our participation with it and much more time. The shoot schedule being spread out the way that it was really enabled us to do all the, the creative things that we, that we wanted to do in a time frame where it wasn't going to you know, be exhausting or, or ridiculous the way that independent film shoots usually are. So yeah, I mean, in some ways it was monumentally difficult. It was also so much more rewarding and you know, just fun to engage in because I wasn't fighting, you know, which in some ways is more exhausting. Yeah, if that makes sense, I don't know. Oh my God, there's so many questions. There's so many <laughs> questions. I'm curious about 27, 2018. How do you manage a life where you're immersing yourself in a project, but also sustaining the rest of your life? It's a great question. I had kind of accidentally stumbled into teaching, which I did part-time for a while. 
So I could work one or two days a week teaching, and then I could spend the rest of 100% of the rest of my time working on my films. I, I managed to go from part-time to full-time, which then was that much more supportive uh, for obvious reasons. And I worked like hell to get that position because I knew that this was, this was one of the few types of jobs that could like support me just enough that I can make my own schedule, I can make my own hours, I can do something that I love doing that doesn't feel like a compromise. And that does actually sort of very directly inform the filmmaking because I'm teaching film. So I'm, I'm constantly in a dialogue about how I do it and why I do it the way I do. But it also is just enough of a financial kind of stable ground to walk on. So in many ways, like, I don't know that I would have, I don't know what I would do, quite frankly, without that aspect of my life. It's a real cornerstone that's been very grounding. But it's essential. You cannot under, undertake filmmaking without that, something like that, you know, which I tell my students all the time. While we're on the subject, yeah. do you do other things to support yourself in addition to teaching? Or is it just like the teaching and then all the other time is filmmaking? All of it. Yeah. When I was teaching part-time, I, did have to, I had to do other things. Like I was, you know, but, but at this point, now that I have, a, I have a home where I teach, which is at the new school, that's, it supports me just enough that I'm, I'm, I can you know, just do that and, and the filmmaking. So, and it's again, like this was, this did not happen overnight. <laughs> this was just like many, many years of just really dedicating the hell out of every aspect of, of, of that job that I could to prove that like, I, cause I, you know, I don't have a master's degree. I don't, I barely, you know, finished. I went to NYU film, but I barely finished. I was not, I was not really interested in that whole path. That was not really where I was going, but, but the, the, when I f- finally did find teaching, I found that like, I really did love it. It just came very, very naturally to me. And having a dialogue about film was like, my God, you can just geek out on so much and it's great. So I realized that it's something that I could do very well and that would support the filmmaking, you know, in a really, in a really positive way. So I pursued it like a, like a mad person because I knew that I knew how much it would help, you know. Can we go back even more in time to the first feature? Because you dropped kind of like a little bomb in there mm-hmm. that I know at oh. least, I know Ulrich really well. And I know that he probably has in his list of questions. How did you get yourself in a position of funding a film, your first feature for a million dollars, to then learn how you didn't want to put a film together from that point? Cool. So, well, the budget at that point had to be that number because that was 2007, eight, And like at that point, at least for my, for my money, digital was shit. So you still had to make a film on film. So we shot that on 35. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it was, but it's true. I mean, a few years later, that did change, right? But like the way that turned out was that I basically, I wrote the script for a particular actor, hmm. Rosario Dawson, to play the main part. And so, and she and I had met in, in a, you know, an acting school several years ago, which I went to as a teenager because I couldn't get into a film school yet. We met there and, you know, we made short films together and things like that. So, you know, I wrote the part for her. And because of that, I think it was, you know, it was relatively possible to get that money. I won't say that it was easy by any means. The film was eventually rated NC-17 and was a really dark subject matter. And, you know, a lot of the, the people who ended up investing in the film, I think, were, were sort of hoping it was going to be like a B-movie horror type thing, which it was not. And, you know, it was a sort of rape revenge film, specifically about the, just the futility of, of, of a revenge situation situation and, and how damning that is. And so it was very dark. And, you know, that was not easy to raise money for. We had all kinds of, you know, meetings with people who wanted to put the money in because of Rosario, but then would say like, but can you, 
make the ending a little lighter and can you do this that can we see some skin during that rape scene can we get awful like awful things like that yeah so just silly and and we we had all made myself rosario and my writing partner was my cousin brian priest we had made this agreement like we're we're not going to make this film unless we can do it in this particular way right with certain things intact and that were crucial to the story and without those things it wasn't worth making the film so yeah we had offers for for even more of an investment at one point there was four million dollars on the table but it would have been a shit film they were telling us to do all manner of just ridiculous things you know what i mean she she should have a friend and she should talk about her feelings and she should call the police and she she all these stupid things it's like who cares you know so yeah (laughs) i mean we just you know we kind of so we went with essentially the, the 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 smallest amount that we could and still make the film but make it in a way where we knew we weren't going to have to compromise at least those things was that like your first project out of film school or had you done other things getting gearing up to that no i mean that was my first feature but no i had made short films before that made a documentary or two. I'd, I'd been working for so for so much but at that point i was 24 so you know i was still i had started really young so i had made a whole bunch of yeah just short films and and then just jumped into that, you know. One of the reasons we reached out to you is I read, I don't even know, was it Filmmaker or Movie Mag- Maker Magazine? It was Filmmaker, right? Yeah. Read this piece that you wrote about building a crew in a non-traditional way. And I mean, that, hoping that's the core of our conversation today. Maybe we can kind of ease sure. into it. What, it sounds like you were rebelling against some sort of traditional crew environment. And maybe let's start there. What, what was your first thought in building well, an atypical crew? Because, yes, I, in making the, f- the descent the way that we did, I had that experience of trying to cram something, a very serious subject that was tasking a lot of, of actors into this ridiculously short shooting schedule with this very, you know, I would say it's a bloated number of, of crew people, but, but you can't really say that at that time because really it's, we had the number of people that we needed, right? Because we had to shoot film. This is not a war story was made in 2018. This is a completely different situation with what digital can do, what lighting you have access to, all the different tools have changed so much at this point that like I'd been spending a long time getting to to know exactly what these tools could do to liberate not just myself, but the rest of the crew and guest from having to go through something like that again. Like how can I set up a situation whereby the only people who are on set are people who deeply give a shit about what this project is and they really want to be there. So nobody, you know, nobody in, in, in suits walking around huffing and puffing and yelling and, you know, all, all kinds of ridiculous things. We just don't need that kind of thing. So, so provided that we can, we can create that, that's what I was aiming for. And that's what I was trying to build with this. So it came with, you know, for one thing, learning the tools and figuring out what, how we could, how we could, you know, logistically do it. I'm not sure if that answers the, the question quite, but yeah, and it, it very much was a rebellion. Sure, I mean, I want I want the tools of production. I don't want to have to ask for permission. I think it's silly because most of the people who have all the money that you think you need to make a film are not going to give you permission to make the kinds of film that you want to make. And I'm, you know, just if I wanted to go down that route, I would have done it a long time ago. Like I'm, I don't, I didn't make this film so that someone would hire me to direct a TV show. It's just not where my life. Do you know what I mean? It's never been in my interest. And I'm not, I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying that's just not my. That's just not my jam. You know, I just want to make the film and tell the story as it needs to be told and, and be loyal to that. You know, really quick follow up question. Like mm-hmm. what, what was your crew size on this is not a war story compared to the 40 that you had on the other film? So roughly between eight and 10 people. 
eight to 12 sometimes nice. we had some, yeah, we had some days where it was just, you know, three of us, <laughs> you know, doing a six hour day, you know, just really trying to break things into small manageable pieces. And, and, you know, look, I was thinking strategically with my DP and my production designer, DP Ryan DeFranco and, and production designer wardrobe, Noah Brickland, all the time as, as collective producers, the three of us going, okay, like moving the pieces where we needed the pieces to be to make this manageable for us. With the underlying understanding that like, at the end of the day, I'm doing 5,000 things all the time. And I expect that of myself and I don't expect it of anybody else. And that's how this happens. So I'm working 25 hours a day, seven days a week for five years. Fine. <laughs> because I want to make the film. Because I would rather do that than have to have more money and have more people to answer to who are not interested. This to me is more fun. It's, I, you know, it, if, whether I can do the same thing when I'm you know, 60 or 70 years old, I don't know. This requires a lot of energy, but I can certainly do it now. And without a doubt, I'm going to do it this way next time. There's no question. So. How did you organize your shoot? Sorry, that's one one last mm -hmm. quick question. How yeah. did you organize your shoot schedule? Because you said you, it was like 30 days or something across nine months. Like, did you do chunks of like five or 10? Or was it like really like two here, two there? Like, how did you organize it? It depended on the location. And it was organized by that. So it ended up being about 38 days total. So the first thing that I did was I, I split the movie into two basic camps of where the where it took place. There's an upstate sequence that's basically around a cabin and adjacent to that, woods, that type of thing. So up in Ithaca, New York. And then there's a papermaking studio. It's the other kind of major location part of the movie. That's a real place. So I needed those two spaces to be places that like I could access anytime, not just like just on the shoot day, but like, you know, bring those locations into the full, the family of the film so that I could go there months in advance and hang out and draw graphs of the room and pre-light and hang things. And, you know, like a lot of preparation for a long time before you show up and shoot. And then always know that you can go back when you need to. So, you know, you know the, the paper mill obviously came from the veterans. And then the cabin actually came from a, another veteran, a World War II veteran named Gould, Gould Coleman, who, you know, he met through through the veteran community. And he just was very, very, he heard me out. I was real formal about exactly what it is I want to do in his house. <laughs> and he was, he, he kind of was on board and really wanted to help. And so I would be able to go to his house and plan out exactly, you know, you know, everything from, you know, how we were going to shoot something to get ideas about, you know, where we would, we could, you know, store things where, you know, all in, in, the, having access to locations is what you need to make something like this work. You can't do it with, without this. So we would do it in chunks where we would have like one week at the paper studio, and then we would stop for two weeks. I could look at some footage. I, we all could rest for God's sake. We could do other jobs. The crew could go off and do other things and come back if they could, you know, if, if that were possible. And then we would have an, another, you know, set of five shooting days or a weekend, you know, so in, 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 scheduled, you know, chunks where there was time in between to breathe and to rest. And yeah, that's, that's, that's how we organized it. Yeah. It, the, everything you're saying just sounds like heaven. It sounds heavenly, genuinely going back. I just, I, my brain works chronologically. So just going back to approaching investors with regard to, to this film and wanting to have creative control, but still five, you know, I don't know, you're saying under 500k, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that that is Four nine 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 nine. Okay, but you know, I, <laughs> but it's still you have to aggregate a lump sum of money to make the movie. Mm -hmm. Are you imparting 
your vision for this film, the atypical crew, the collective model, when you approach investors? And what is that conversation like? So there's, there's two parts to that. One is I can say it's, it's significantly lower than 500K. I just can't say what it is. But, <laughs> but, but as far as the investment situation goes, it, it wasn't a typical kind of thing. I didn't have to pitch this. So th- I don't know how much this part of the conversation is really going to help anybody who's, mm. you know, who's listening to this because I'm in the, I had a particular sort of scenario, which is a weird one. The, the money came from three places. One was through a grant from the New York Foundation for the Arts, Women in Film Media Fund. They were very generous. Uh, gave us like 40 grand or something. A big grant. Very helpful for us. The other was uh, uh, hard to Mildly hard to talk about, but basically, I had a situation in 2015 that I guess there's a shorthand for now, which is a Me Too situation. So I ha- it was really in- enormously difficult to to go through, and I had this. I had written this letter, and I wanted this letter to be read by the people involved. And I had a, I had some friend of mine give me advice saying, if you don't send this from a lawyer, they're not going to read it. And I was like, I don't give a fuck about lawyers. I just want them to read this fucking letter. They're not going to read it. You have to put it on a lawyer's letterhead. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck. So I, I did that. I, I was like, fine, can you just send this for me? So long story short, there ended up being this NDA and this amount of money. So I was like, okay, I'm taking 100% of this and turning it into a film. I didn't touch it. I took 100% of that and made it into this film. And in addition, and it was not a lot of money. It was, I was what I'm trying to say is that like I was trying to get nothing, and I got something, which was weird. So I took that, and which was a you know basically a situation where it was being re-traumatized from other trauma, and turned it into this. And I and I do like that. That's a component of how the film came into being because it is a fucking film about trauma. So this part of it actually does matter to me, and it means a lot. And then the third component was Rosario as an executive producer coming in to basically fill in what we were missing. Which was critical because it, there was a certain point where I couldn't cast the main actor, Sam Medigoke, w- was not in New York and we were filming in New York. And the cost of him, of needing to fly him here and put him up was, was like, oh shit, like, I really want this guy in this film. What are we going to do? And Rosario's like this absolute, you know, sort of, she can see exactly what the vision is and see exactly why it needs to be what it is. And was like, no, we're, we will make this happen. And she did. And so it's, it's, you know, so those three components made, made the film come into being. And it was just enough <laughs> to do what we needed to do. So like I said, this is, it's a very particular situation, but I, what it reflects, and, I, and it, as I make another film after this, the same idea is that like, I'm not trying to do the thing where you beg for money and pitch and make lookbooks and things like that. All I'm trying to do is keep costs down enough that all I can, that all I really need to pay for is paying the people who work on the film. Because there are some ancillary costs, of course, but like you should, you should. There are ways to think about how to make a film powerfully cinematic without having to go through a lot of the things that other movies do. I can only speak to a certain kind of film, which is the kind of film that I love, which is character driven, you know, humanistic actor type shit. I cannot, ma- I cannot make a Marvel movie this way or a James Bond movie this way, but I also don't, don't care to. So I'm, I'm cultivating this on purpose. It's the yeah, yeah, but but, but even raising the kind of money you're talking about, like you still have to get it from somewhere. And it sounds like the process you follow to make this film isn't necessarily repeatable. Like you can't, no. like you're not going to have another situation no. where that money no, no, no. comes. So you're going to. That's, a, that's so exactly the, what I mean. It's it's not repeatable. So, but but what, the other thing I didn't mention too is that like I took I have savings from being a teacher, and I also just shoved it in, into wherever I needed to. 
just like this is, and you know, that requires a certain kind of lifestyle too. I have, I, I keep everything as minimal as I can. You know, I, I go shopping for clothes once every two years, t- 10 years or something at the Goodwill. I don't know. I just don't, you know, I like ramen. I don't know. I keep things as slow as I can so that I can, and I, and I have a job whereby I can, whatever savings I have, I can funnel back into the film. And I, and I realize that everybody's, you know, it, it can't possibly be the same scenario for each person, right? The only way that I think that this kind of model is repeatable is in the idea that like, you can keep the cost of making the film down as much as possible so that you don't have to be asking more and more people for more and more money. It is possible. One of the ways that we did this is by, by figuring out exactly how natural light and practical light and a whole kind of lighting schematic, which I do talk a lot about in that filmmaker article, how that completely changes the equipment that you need and all of the things that go with that. Making this film wouldn't have been possible without that very specific lighting scheme. Now, it works for our story. Will it work for yours? I, I don't know. But I think that if you're trying to liberate yourself from, the, from the, the kind of purgatory of raising money forever for a film, you have to think outside the box about like, what is it you actually need? Because I, I don't think that most movies need nine trucks full of lights. I don't think so. You know, not the kind of films that I'm talking about. You know, again, like, no, you can't make a James Bond movie with this, but you can make a Cassavetes-sized film if it's, if it's, if it's character-driven. And there's a lot of ways to think about that, too. You know, and also having an eye for what locations will serve you. If you find a location that already has cinematic properties, your production budget is zero. And that's what it should be. So again, other than paying people to work on the film and feeding them well and taking care of them and having overtime if you need to and hopefully not having it, you know... There are things that, that become possible when people are, are as excited as you are about what the film is. You know, it mattered to more people than just me, which is another thing that enabled it to come into being. Like the, like the World War II veteran who came on board and provided his, his home and we could shoot there and all of this, it, the story mattered to him. And he could see that we were serious about making the film and we were diligent and we were going 150% to to be careful and to, and to be clear and communicate. I mean, there are things that you can do that are outside money considerations. And then it ends up that much more rewarding as an experience. He's a terrific friend of mine now. You know, he's a mentor. He's like family. And so many f- friendships came from this, from this film. I don't know how it would have been a whole different thing if it had been done, done another way. I don't think it could have been done another way. You know, does that make sense? And I also, it does, yes. <laughs> but also questioning... You know, you have your passion, you have your commitment. Those are all things you're bringing to the table to bring people on board with you to encourage them to invest the same amount of energy or similar, maybe not the same, but similar amounts of energy. You also earlier in the conversation dropped the three people over six hours. Like, are you also offering atypical days and, you know, not the 12 to 14 hour scenario that we're all used to? And maybe you could speak to that. Yeah, sure. So our goal was like, a 10 hour day, a 12 hour day, you know, something along those lines and hopefully shorter if we could do it. Again, with, with an eye towards the fact that like we're, we're a small team of people, we can only do so much. We're not trying to do what a 40 person crew can do. We're trying to do what an eight to 10 person crew can do. And so one of the things that we did was, was you know, again, like all the prep that was going on with, you know, that, I, that I've described, really what it came down to was, you know, just having, you know, we had a day rate that was equivalent to the, the SAG ultra low budget agreement. And that was all across the board. Everybody's getting the same thing. I'm of course not taking a salary. That's not even an issue, a question. And then, you know, really it just becomes a matter of sticking to that, 
you know, we all make the agreement, which we're, we're aiming for a 10 to 12 hour day. We had, I think, one or two days where we were over and I would ask for grace and it was one hour and we had an overtime rate and that's what we did. We had travel days, which we paid for. You know, so again, but to me, this is where this is what the budget is for. And if I could, if we could have paid people more, my God, that's what we want to do. You know, and and that's why you would raise the money to make the film. I'm not. I don't advocate for trying to do this in in a short film student style where you don't pay anybody. That's nonsense. You know, it's it's a feature and it's an undertaking. But again, I think that if what you're offering is something is something meaningful and substantial in terms of a narrative film and something that is creatively engaging and, and gratifying for the person doing it. See, I'm not asking for favors. That's different. What you're asking for is like, it took, it took me a long time to find the right people to be on this film because I wasn't waiting for like the flashiest DP with the coolest resume to do whatever, like, or had the greatest package. I was looking for the DP who wanted to make this film for the sake of their own integrity for the sake of their own interest in their own craft, to do it for themselves, right? And I found them. So you're not looking for people to just, it's not a stepping stone to something else. It's got to be like genuine interest in the here and now, like we're going to embark on this thing. You want to climb this mountain with me, right? And what that takes is time. If you're in a hurry, you're going to pick the wrong people and you're going to make dumb choices, right? If you have time and you say, and, and I just had to keep saying this and it was so frustrating. It took forever, forever to cast. It took forever to find the, you know, you find one crew and person and we have to, we have to find the right person in each one of these positions. And that takes time. And you, you have to just be willing to say to yourself, I'm not making this film until it's ready. Oh my God. I have like 17 more questions. I'm trying to stop myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to pull Liz. I want to go back in time a little <laughs> bit just because. I feel like the listeners of the show and myself, like if I didn't ask this question, I think they would be like wondering like, what the hell? But like, so you did something that most indie filmmakers don't get a chance to do. You made a movie for a $1 million budget with a lead talent in a leading role. So when the movie's out and done, like what happened after that? Like, was your life completely changed? Were opportunities flooding your way or was it not that at all? Like what was the scenario once the film was out and released? So. And the film was out and released. It didn't do very well. It had a, a, a kind of a astounding, great review in the New York Times and a few other places. And that was great. And then it was panned by a lot of places. And, you know, it didn't make a whole lot of money. And people didn't really get the movie. And also, I was only becoming aware at that point of how much trauma I was living with. I managed to get through the making of the entire film with real blinders on. Hmm. So when the film came out, I had real misgivings about my life. I had done the thing I said I was going to do. I made my first feature at 24. I made it the way I wanted to make it. I didn't compromise. I fought, I fought, I fought, I fought. And I got it out and I got the Times review. And then it was just like, what the fuck happened in my life? Nothing's what I thought it was. And no, I did not have a, a flood of offers because I made an NC-17 film that was real fucking downer about rape and revenge. And that's just not something that anybody gives a fuck about in terms of offering you a job. You know, this was, you don't go from that to directing some episode of some show. It just doesn't work that way, hmm. which I didn't, I knew at the time and I didn't care. You know what I mean? But it also didn't open any doors as far as like, so what's your next project? It was like a lot of silence and a lot. And I think also I had, you know, 
I don't know, I was, I was very much a, a, a tough guy fighting for the film that I needed to fight for. So I didn't make a lot of friends, you know, in that respect either. So I don't, I, I think that people probably had some, there was a lot of like gossip and whatnot that I was hard to work with and stuff. Mm. But so really what, I woke up to just the reality of things being really quite different than I thought. And my, my whole life experience being very difficult and lonely and, and, and sort of, I didn't, I had, I knew I had to deal with my life, like enough film. I was, I was, I was living, breathing and eating film since I was 12. And I was like, fuck this and fuck everything I need to live right now. So long story short, I had found the practice of, of an extreme form of Zen meditation through a friend of mine. And I was very struck by it. I was like, oh my God, this is clearly how to live. So I, I got rid of all my shit and I went to a Zen Buddhist monastery and lived there for a year. It was a very grounding sort of experience. And it kind of put me back into a, like, I need to get my footing and live. Like, I know I love film. I can't really leave it, but I don't know what I'm going to do yet. So I just, you know, I kind of was like, I had to regroup and start over. And I thought, why did I love this in the first place? And then I found my way back to the actor studio and I started working with them and I started writing my own material and working with actors and really just, I felt like I was kind of starting over again, just with like, let me just remember what, what it is that I loved so much. So I just, I kind of just, you know, I was working on jobs. I was like waiting tables and, you know, and then I was working with, with actors at the actor studio and writing material for them and for myself and just kind of starting from scratch. And I wrote every day, I would write five pages every day. It was shit for like a year, probably until I really kind of got my foothold into like, what's my writing voice? I started over really. And I was trying to get my bearings about what really mattered to me about this because I knew I had, I made the film that I, I, I wanted to make, but I knew that the, the result was in terms of life experience, it was, it was really dark. And, and I, that's not, that's not what I want. Mm. Um, so yeah, I just, I, so I did, I did, some theater for a while. I was directing a play. I was working on stuff, but mostly I was, I was training and I was working on my craft and I was also doing a lot of therapy. I was like, I was in it. I was totally immersed in it. I was like, I don't know what, <laughs> but I need to, you know, I need to become a human being so I can function. And, and that's what I was working on for a long time. And, you know, teaching helped me ground there as well. It's a lot of sweat hours. You know, it took me a lot, like, again, I said, like, literally no matter what was happening, I didn't know holidays, marriage, divorce. I was writing every single day, you know, a five page scene, 10 pages, 15 pages, however hard it was, I wrote every day. And then I finally kind of broke through to this, like I got into a rhythm where I understood what I, what kind of dialogue I loved, why I loved the movies that I loved, why I cared about certain characters, what stories I needed. I was honing and developing all of that stuff. This was a daily, daily, daily thing for years. So this film did not come out of nowhere. This film was the result of like years of working on figuring out how the fuck to write, how, how to work with actors, how to make a story born out of actors. And, and always in the back of my mind, knowing that like, if it's an actor-driven story, it's compelling and it won't cost a lot. And if it's compelling and it won't cost a lot, there's a chance that I could save a couple of bucks here and there and pull it together and make the film. You know, I know enough good actors, you know, they're not famous people. I know enough good actors, good, talented human beings. And even if I don't know them, I'll find them. But these, those are the components that make fascinating film to me. So that's what I was working on. You know, and then I made this film. I'm trying to figure out a way to word this question because it feels indelicate. Uh, I guess I'm hearing your life and it sounds ideal to me. It sounds like like my favorite word when I was 10, it was intense. Like the I really embrace and am drawn to an intense character and an intense lifestyle. And so I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm sorry, this is going to get so personal and really inappropriate, but I'm like thinking about my 
two-year-old and I'm like, I can't make room for that kind of intensity, or at least I feel Hmm. inhibited because of certain obligations that I have. And this is not the question of like, tell me about whether you want children or whatever. I don't care about that. And I'm not ever going to put you in that position. But I'm just curious about your personal life and your ability to with live an intensity and also maintain a personal life, I guess. Yeah, I hear you. That's, that's something that I, I knew I never wanted to compromise, I guess. From a really early age, I, I felt so deeply connected to, to film, to acting, to directing, to just, I, I knew with a lot of clarity what, what I wanted to do. And I knew that like, I didn't, I don't care about suburbs. I don't care about degrees. I don't care about like a lot of things that I was told, you know, at least what the culture tells you you're supposed to care about. I just, I had a trajectory and I was not going to sacrifice it. And yeah, I, intensity was, was certainly like my whole, I, I you know, I, I, I thought sleep was a waste of time. <laughs> you know, I tried to, I didn't stay up early and, you know, I, you know, I had, I had, when I was 15, I made a film with my, my best friend's grandfather, who's a Holocaust survivor. And this was like my first film. And he was entrusting me with his story and we were collaborating. And I had, my whole room was just nothing but books about the Holocaust and all the different books and notebooks. And just, I had no, I didn't sleep on my bed. If I fell asleep, it was an accident. And I went from the chair to the floor, my poor parents, you know, but they were, you know, they, they kind of, they understood there was no no stopping this kind of, I was doing what I was going to do. And it was, I guess, every step of the way, I've, I've kind of had this drive to not compromise where it comes to that. And I have to live the life I'm living and do the things that I know that I need to do. I don't know how that would coincide with having a family as you're describing, Liz. And I do know that like, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fine to talk about it because it is something that is, is so much a part of, you know, it's, it's, our, it's our lives, right? I mean, I always felt like I'll listen for that feeling. And if I feel like I have that is something I have to do, I'll do it. But I never had that like as much as I felt like I have to make films, I never felt like I have to have a family. I have to that never came. So I, you know, I'm I feel like I'm 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 abiding in that in that zone where I'm doing the things that are that are calling me with that level of urgency and intensity. And those are the things I'm engaging in. And I'm aware that like, you know, because I think that bringing a human being into the world is way more of a commitment than making a film. So <laughs> if I were to hear that urgency, it would have to be 10 times as loud as the, as the urgency to make a film. And that's loud for me. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's a question in there, really. But you, know, you have to just sort of go with what you, what you know is energizing you. you know? And that's, that's what I've done. And I think that it's just been a matter of figuring out how to do it. And to do it in a way that isn't self-destructive, because for a while I did do that. And that's what the sentence sort of came out of, was just this like, so immersed in this self-sacrificing kind of everything for the purpose. And I realized like, that doesn't work, actually. You know, I actually do have to, you know, take care of the human being that I am enough that I can engage and put boundaries on things. You know, that, that lesson took a while for me. It really, even through making this is not a war story. This like this kind of cemented all of those lessons for me in a lot of ways. But entering into the situation, I was still you know you try to live in the painting and you have to you have to kind of not do that because it isn't good for anybody and certainly not for yourself as as, as the captain of the ship. There, you can't really do that and be there for people, you know, and for you know, and for yourself, of course. So going back to this is not a war story. I want to hear about how you got 
it on HBO Max? Like, was it a cert- at a certain film festival that you like made that connection? Like, how did that all come about? Yeah, we it was so it was so crazy because we we got turned down by like every major fucking film festival, you know, like all the big ones, you know, like every it was just like I thought at least you know <laughs> no they all said no right. <laughs> And I was like, God, this isn't what I was expecting. And I know it's a good film. Okay, shit, what are we going to do? And then, of course, the pandemic was even more of a wrench because it was just like they didn't even, they were being canceled. They were being postponed. They were, you know, no one knew what was going on. We were, we were the only, our only good thing at that for a while was that we were shortlisted for Directors Fortnite, which I was like, you know, it can, which I was like clinging to, like, oh my God, this is our thing, you know. And then they postponed and they canceled or whatever. And that didn't happen. So I finally got to a point where I was like, I don't give a fuck. Let's premiere wherever. Whoever says yes, we're going. Um, so we premiered at San Francisco Indie Fest, which was fucking awesome. It was virtual. And we had a lot of fun. I was like, okay, cool. I don't know what the hell is going to happen next, but great. We, we won the audience award there. And then we went on to a film, a festival called Cinequest, which I had never heard of. And my producer was like, nice. oh, they're, they're super cool. You should totally do it. I'm like, okay. My producer says they're cool. I think I, I, I'm with him and he's, you know, been very supportive and we're just like i'm, I'm gonna do it because noah vouches for it so cool and it was great and it was fun and then i get this email from them saying warner media wants to see your film and i laughed out loud it's like the fuck do they want to see the film for what is this it's silly what are, and i thought you know what i mean like i just thought okay yeah this is great whatever yeah sure send it to them you know i really was i was not that i was cynical but i was just like at this point we were we had such a weird trajectory that 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 i didn't think anything of it and then a couple months went by and they reached out again and I was like, and they wanted to meet and talk. And, you know, Rosario is one of the producers. So, so we were all going to have this conversation on the phone. And I thought, okay, they're going to let us down easy because, you know, Rosario is a producer and they want to be kind and they want to say no very graciously or whatever. And it, it was not the case at all. And they were, they, we got on the phone and they started telling me about their company, this company called Project 150 that is within Warner Media, but they're autonomous and they, and they represent artists were primarily sort of on the fringes of, of the mainstream, whatever, attentions and so on and get, and get forgotten about and who need representation. And, and, and they started pitching their company to me. I was like, this doesn't sound like a no. Isn't it kind of interesting <laughs> pitching their own company. This sounds cool. And they, they're just, you know, it's, if, you, if a filmmaker could sort of invent a distribution company, you know, it would, it would be this entity because they, they have resources through a parent company, but they don't have all of those fucking strings. So the, the biggest question on my mind was like, okay, of course, this is brilliant, but what do they want me to do with the film in exchange for this? And they weren't asking for any cuts to the film. They weren't asking for any compromises. And I, I had to make that very clear to them. I was like, look, of course, we would love to you know, go down this road with you guys, but I have to be clear. Like, I made this film with a, with a whole team of combat veterans who I said, like, we're taking this to the finish line and nobody's going to make a rah-rah military movie out of this. No one's going to change this to make it like the thing that it isn't, right? So I, I had to be real clear about that. I was like, we, we can do this, but I am I, not changing the film in that regard. They're like, oh, no, no, that's, we want it to be what it is. We, don't, we, we love the fact that it's anti-war. We love the fact that it's, it's doing something that no other film that tackle, tackles the subject even bothers to do. And, and does it with all this authenticity that no other film has in this subject matter. So, you know, they, they just, it's, they've, they're awesome. I mean, I don't know what else to say. They really are just, they've come through. They really have. And the film is out. And now, you know, it's, it's, people can, can see it. It's available for, for folks, you know, relatively, you know. That's the most that you can hope for as a filmmaker, you know. 
it's like, what the hell? You know, that's 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 it right there. You got you, you bring you bring it to the finish line. You deliver the baby, whatever the fuck the metaphor is. You know, it's out, it's done. Can you track how Dandy Spirit Nom came about, or is that a clear trajectory? Uh, they, I mean, I don't know. They just I I I just watched the thing on YouTube. I don't know how it came about because no one told me. It all so no one like, like the, gave you a heads up like this is coming. Oh no. And no, you don't even no, no, no. know like the machinations, the internal machinations of how it was pitched. No, or- I mean you have to you have to send in a thing like you want your film to qualify. So we you did that, did that. Okay. Was, <laughs> many months ago. It's like Noah Lang and my, my producer and, and and myself were just like, okay, what do you have to fill in a form or something and send them some things? And then I think at one point I was like, is there anything else we can do? And he's like, I've asked people. I think this is all you do. It's like, okay, we just we did all the things. We send it in, you know, like. And then it was just, you know, that day of, you know, I think that they're going to announce it today. And I'm like checking in and while I'm like doing my taxes or whatever that I'm trying to get ahead of here. And, you know, then there's no Naomi Watts just saying it, you know, that was it. I, I really didn't. Yeah, no heads up or anything. Super cool. Going back to the deal, you know, w- with that company through Warner Media, like, did they pay you any amount from the movie? Or they was did. It like, yeah. straight up? Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's the other beautiful thing about what's happened is that they... They paid us for the film so that we we have now, we're going to make back what we spent. We're going to make back wow. what we spent. There's a little bit left that we can then turn over to, you know, everybody on the crew has points and veterans who have points and, you know, like people who can who participated can actually be, be, be paid out a little bit. It's not, it's not a ton, but the fact that it's anything is, is, as you know, like very rare for an independent film. So it's, I, yeah, I feel like, we really sort of, we, we took something, you know, really from, from what it was where, and we created something that we all, we all intended to create. And, and then this was the result of it was really to, to find the right home and then to, and then to get, get back what we, what we invested is, is so, so unheard of. And so, so much the reward, you know, I just wanted to know, like, now that you're on the other side of this film, like you've got like great success, like, you know, return on the investment, HBO max. Indie Spirit Nom, this is like the shit, right? Like all the dreams of filmmakers that we have, these are the dreams. So now what's your trajectory looking like? Do you, do you see opportunities to make your next movie come about from the success of this yeah, yeah. Not a War Story? Yeah, totally. I mean, I had... So during, during the pandemic, before I knew what was going to happen with the film and there was lockdown and it, we really didn't know, you know, even what festival we'd be in next or what was going to happen, I was already... Put, putting together what I knew I wanted my next film to be. I had a real, a very vivid idea in mind. And I started tampering with it and, and futzing around with it, writing, writing where I could. So I have an unfinished script, but I'm working on it. Project 150 is coming in with like 50% of what the budget is for the film, which is very wow. small. Again, it's going to be a couple hundred thousand dollars, not, nothing more than that. Yeah, it's a four character, one location, essentially one location film that I want to shoot in Savannah, Georgia, hopefully next year. That's the plan, you know, and we'll just do, you know, apply for some grants like we did before, same kind of, you know, I'll, I'll going to throw in what I have, you know, things of that sort. But it's, again, a small scale film, but it's, you know, I'm very excited about it. And, you know, I've been already writing it. I've been writing it for a while. So it's called uh, Whitey on the Moon. In the song. Congratulations. Yeah. So Thanks, fucking man. awesome. Yeah. It's like the dream. Yeah. This is the yeah. dream. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is literally yeah. the dream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, man. And but but you know, but so many years of 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 working. Do you know what I mean? Like I just I cannot stress that enough. Like so many years of just 
of just like con and 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 you know hitting walls sometimes. Like there was a point where we were, you know we we're in pre production uh, on this is not a war story and just so much adversity and and things like that. And I just thought, fuck this! I can take this little budget that I have and I can make a farm. I can go do things. I can build a little artist <laughs> colony. I can, you know, there's other things you could do with a little amount of resources like that. You know, I was very ready a couple of times, but. You know, I, I continued, and I'm very happy that I did. I don't. I've tried at various points to let go of film, but I haven't been able to. So, yeah. well, you are almost out. We have our final six questions, formerly known as final oh, five. Good. What is the first film you ever made, and how do you feel about it now? Like the sh- first short like film, anything. Ever made? Like it could be the first like chat, like video project in middle school that you ever made. Whatever it is, I guess the first. Yeah, if I go way back, I made a f- short film. It was three and a half minutes, and it was an adaptation of the book Glass Gallus, which I then turned. I wrote a feature script based on that book when I was like a couple of years later when I was 16. But I made this little short at, at, at when I was 12 and a half. And I had all my actors, little actor friends from Louis Strasberg Theater, be in the little film with me. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? <laughs> well, it, it came from Werner Herzog. He's, I was in a bit of a confused state. And he said, he said to me, he interrupted, I was saying, I was trying to explain to him why I was doing all kinds of things with this is not a war story. And he interrupted me. He said, you are not a social worker. You are not a social worker. Well, you're right. I mean, he's right. So for me, this was the best advice because I did lose sight of the fact that like, yeah, I'm a filmmaker, right? And there are things you can do and things you can't do. It's specific to me, but it was an enormous help because I, it, I really needed to kind of clarify, you know where I'm, what I was doing versus not taking on things that I couldn't do, right? I don't know if that's helpful, but... No, that is, that is helpful. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? Someone, someone telling me to make a lookbook or a mood board or something, <laughs> to which I always just laugh and say, I'm making a film, I'm not making a mood board. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> my producer just told me to make one for my next movie. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> just make the film. <laughs> do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Yeah, longevity. I mean, I just, I want to be able to make, make several films over the course of my life. You know, it's not so much being prolific as it just, as it is longevity. I really want to be doing this my whole life, you know? Um, Like, I don't see anything wrong with like, you know, making, you know, one film every couple of years, you know, like a Kubrick or a Malick or something. There's nothing wrong with that. You know what I mean? I mean, other than the fact that it doesn't pay, (laughs) you know? But you already figured that out. So you're good with the team. Oh, yeah, sure. Sure, yeah. If you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Just one thing. So you could say things. like 40. Say, say a lot. I would... I, would yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess I would, have, I would have advised myself to... I guess to, just to not be so hard on myself. You know, I was my own worst enemy for a while, you know. I don't, I don't think that if you, if you, you can't be so mean and angry to, towards yourself and expect a result, you know, a little kindness goes a really long way. You know, if you, if you can treat yourself like a, like a kid, like, you know, be kind and be gentle and be understanding, you know, to relate to yourself in a, in a kinder way, you know, would be a good idea. And last question, is making movies hard? Oh, yeah, of course. God, yeah. But, you know, I think... Either embrace that or you walk away from it because it doesn't get easier. I think that's the funny misconception that people have about, oh, when I have, when I raise a lot of money, 
is it going to be so much easier? It's like, no, it isn't. <laughs> you have more money, then you have more people who care about that money and they're interested in the investment and they're interested in the choices you're making. And it's so complicated. So having more money doesn't make things easier. You know, the filmmaking process is hard, no matter what you're doing, no matter how much money you have, no matter what you're undertaking. It's hard. It's hard for different reasons. It's a different set of anxieties, but they're all present. So you, you either embrace how difficult it is and you do that because you love it, or you realize you don't love it and you walk away. I think there's plenty easier ways to make, make a buck than to do this shit. You know, it's hard. <laughs> I, I clearly can't do anything else. So I'm stuck. I don't know about you guys. We're stuck too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, pretty much. How can people best support you? Call, call to call your, give us your call to action. Oh gosh. Well, you know, watch the film on HBO Max. This is not a war story. It'll be on for another three and a half years. I think they have it for. We got time. That's <laughs> Other great. than that, you know, look out for for Whitey on the Moon. You know, at some point. I guess that's it. Thank you for coming on the show, Arik. What do you remember about our conversation with Talia? I remember like being really curious about Talia when we went into this interview and like like really wanting to know like what happened in the gap between her first feature and her second feature, you know, and I had all kinds of assumptions of what that could be. But then just to hear her story of like, you know, basically refining herself after making her first feature and how traumatic that experience was for her. It was really interesting just to kind of hear like, like what that was like, like that she was one of these people like, like, I don't know if you had this, but I think every filmmaker at some point has had this where it's like, I have to make my first feature by X time. Mm -hmm. did, did you have that? Yeah, I've, I did it before I was 30. And just barely, just barely. And that, for some reason, was really important to me, which is so stupid. But anyway. I thought I had that for a little bit where I was like, I want to do it before I'm 30. And then it was like, clearly not going to happen. And I was like, you know what? F fuck it. Like, let it go. Like, who cares? Like, there's not, there's no timeline. There's no rush. There's no deadline. But she did hers, but 24, right? It was when she did her first feature. Yeah, I think so. Early 20s. Yeah. And it was like really important to her to do it by that age, you know? And I feel like that's a thing that I hope people are getting away from more and more and that they're not putting that kind of ridiculous pressure on themselves. Like, I, I just watched the opening to Tick, Tick, Boom the other day, and he's comparing himself to John Lennon and all these other famous people. And like, yeah, John Lennon, like, wrote his last song by the time that he was 30, which is like my age now, or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I think it's just a bad, it's a bad place to start comparing yourself to John Lennon or to any of these people. Like, Steven Spielberg or whatever, like, you can't compare yourself to these, like, icons, these, like, one-in-a-lifetime personalities that you'll probably never see again. It's just like, don't put that pressure on yourself. Like, that's insane. So, I just thought it was really interesting, like, to, 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 to see the growth of her from, like, being in that place to where she is now, which is, like, a much more, like, I don't know, it seems very confident filmmaker and, like, very, like, at peace with what she wants in her career and, like, kind of you know, happy with what she's doing as an artist and a filmmaker and the way that she's chosen to approach her, her life and her, her work, you know? And it's so funny because she keeps on talking about how she doesn't care about like, like, I don't care about the outcome. Like, I don't care about these things. I don't trying to get a writer's room job. I'm not trying to get this thing out of for making my movie. But it's like, once she's like, let that all go. It's like, this is the movie that has like gotten her the opportunity to make her next movie. And it's so interesting to me. It's just like, you gotta let go. And then things come. So, I don't know. That's what I took away from it. What about you, Liz? I love that. I love that. I didn't think I drew that line between her pressure at an early, in early 20s uh, to her finding herself in her later years. 
I the things I remember are one I admire her like I just look at her and I just go I remember sitting there just being like this woman is amazing how can I like just through osmosis through the zoom screen can I get something from her can I like learn something from this to be more like her so I was really really impressed with her and then the thing that I that has been like weirdly haunting me has nothing to do with interview but I think during the interview, I said something like, I know Ulrich really well. And I don't know why I said that. And it's been like really <laughs> bothering me because like, I do know you, but I don't know you in a way that I would say to someone else. Well, I know him really well. And I think I used that in the beginning of a question with her. <laughs> and that is what I remember about the show. <laughs> it's like me saying this very weird thing. Like, why would I say that? But... Anyway, Talia is like one of the top 10, top 10 interviews for me, just from the value that I thought she brought and the, the intensity and her rebelliousness. I just thought she's, she's so cool. She's such a cool person. Yeah. I think after a hundred plus episodes of talking, like it's kind of fair for us to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It felt presumptuous though. It felt very strange for me to like throw that into the car. But you're right. You're right. You're right. You, you definitely know me as a filmmaker and you definitely know me as an interviewer for sure. So That's I feel right. Like the, and you've seen my movie like you, in the rough stage and like, you know, you, yeah. So I feel like that seems fair. That's funny that that's the thing that you remember. That's very Liz of you, if I may say so myself. But yeah, no, I, Talia was great. I, I just, yeah, definitely up there for me in, in the interviews. And I think like, there's just a lot to learn from her and her approach to her filmmaking career and her like, just the way that she thinks about story and, and writing. It's very, very interesting. It's very dedicated in a way that I think is like really important. And then just hearing about her past that like, you know, when she was really young and like her, her filmmaking life then and like what she was, it's like very interesting to hear like how she started and where she is now. And it's like, you know, in a way she's mm -hmm. kind of come full circle back to that same kind of approach from her earlier days, but like without all the bullshit, like weighing on her shoulders that gets thrown on us as we like, you know, start to try to like want to have success and, you know, blah, 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 all that shit. It seems like it's those type of people that garner support because when you, once you eschew the system and you say, like, I don't need you, you become cooler. Like, you become, you look more valuable. Like, it's kind of like, I don't know if you had this in your teenage years, but all my girlfriends would be like, if you stop wanting a boyfriend, you're going to get one. It was like this weird <laughs> thing where they're like, if you stop obsessing over what you want and you let it go and just go after what you need, things gravitate to you because you have this kind of like self-confidence. You don't appear so desperate. You don't appear so needy. And it feels like that is applying to filmmaking too. Like you think about like Ryan Coogler, how he's not on social media. It's like that same idea where it's like, he doesn't need us. He's, he's fine. He's fine. And that makes him cooler. So I feel like Talia is kind of like, she's being embraced by the system because she's also being seen as like a true artist, which is yeah. what I think we all really want. But we have to rely on social media and marketing to break through the noise because we don't have the other items of leverage that I think she has at this point. Mm, interesting. Well, speaking of Talia, she is also the author of the article that we have this week from Filmmaker Magazine called How to Rethink the Budget Needs and Hierarchies of Traditional Film Production to Enable Creative Freedom on the Making of This Is Not a War Story. So just to sum things up a little bit, Talia basically breaks down how she approached the making of her film, This Is Not a War Story, with a crew of 8 to 12, and then she compares it to how she shot her first feature, The Descent, in the traditional fashion with a 40-plus person crew, you know, going 
14 to 18 hour days and all that bullshit that everyone does, you know, in regular <laughs> filmmaking. She drops a lot of great tidbits about how to pick your team, how she structured her shooting schedule, and some key aspects of her production, like, you know, having extended and open access to her two main locations, which I thought was like, really, really, really important and is like really what made her production possible. So Liz, like, you you read this before we even talked to Talia. So like, what did you take away from this article? I read it and I was like, I have to talk to this woman and <laughs> I have to get her on the show. <laughs> so I was thrilled by it. And I don't know if I could put into action what she put into action. I don't know if I could invest years of my life immersing myself in development of content and then somehow convince a small crew to get a, to make an emotional stake in a project the way she convinced her small crew to do it. But in the pod collective that I'm doing with Naomi McDougall-Jones this year, we are looking at something just like this, where it's how can you not emulate the studio system, but do something more radical? So I was really excited by pushing the dates of a production to be more than just like a 30-day production, but really doing like that eight-month thing is really interesting to me. And I love the 360-degree approach to lighting that she talks about. Sorry, just to kind of recap, she said that they shot in two-week segments over eight months, which is like comparable to Alim Hossein, who was on the show like a year ago, talking about slower filmmaking. I mean, his was nine years. But <laughs> a little different. <laughs> but I like the idea of not just shooting your shot in 30 days and then you just deal with what you have, but constantly reevaluating, which Christine Weatherup on our show talked about too for yeah. See You Next Year. So I love all of this. And then, yes, that idea of like working around a location you have access to is super exciting. The th only thing I take some issue with is she seemed to prioritize the actor-director relationship over the writer-director relationship. Like she says in the article to avoid writers groups and to get your actors to re read your material as soon as possible, which sounds lovely. But I do think there's a world where you want to protect your story before you put it out into the world. And so that was the only thing that was jarring to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. I wonder if she says that because she feels like if you get other writers' opinions, like it's going to stop becoming your story and start becoming someone else's. And it's like the sort mm -hmm. of the similar kind of thing that she faced when dealing with investors and, you know, executive producers on her first feature that they like would have all these notes and then it's compromises. And it's, and it's so like when you're doing it with a writer's group, it, it kind of becomes similar. Like you could feel pressured or influenced to change the story based off of another writer's aesthetic which isn't necessarily your aesthetic you know i don't necessarily agree with that either like i kind of feel like i like to hear other people's perspective on my work and to like kind of get an inside of where it lands with people and then it's up to me as the writer to decide like if i take that advice or not you know but yeah i'm definitely not as as you know weary of that as she is but yeah the, the thing that stuck out to me that i thought was a little bit like i call bullshit on just a little bit is where she says you know if you write good content then you're going to have great actors are going to come to you. The actors will find you. And like, that's just, I don't think that's true. <laughs> like you can write the greatest thing in the world, but if you don't know how to send it to you or how to reach out to people or how to find your, your talent, like it doesn't matter how good it is if, if you can't get people to read it. So I, I feel like hmm. she left out like a kind of a big important aspect of, you know, her production and like how she actually got her work to her actors, you know? And I mean, she is an actor herself, which, you know, she talks about in the article, but I feel like her being an actor, 
her having connections to other actors, like I think all that stuff is like really important in how she was able to secure the cast that she was secured. And she probably has relationships with like agents or managers or somebody that she can reach out to to approach, you know, some of the talent that she got. So I feel like there's, there seems like a missing piece that maybe didn't belong in that article. But, you know. It's like, remember when Ross Putnam was on the show? Sorry, Ross Putman was on the show. And he's the, um, the Verve finance guy. And he was saying the cream rises to the top. And I remember we really took issue with that because I also agree. I don't think the cream rises to the top. And it's Not always you, you need you need a little help. And that I think yeah. she has that. Yeah. Especially when you're like getting to like a, a place like Verve. It's like, you know, you need to have somebody like, you know, vouch for you in order for that work to get to those kinds of people. And I think that's true for like kind of anything that's like, you know, above a really, really tiny production company, even like. Your middle production companies, like they need some sort of, you know, connection, some sort of person to, to say, yes, that this person is credible. Like you can't just send your work out and expect it to be read and that if it's great, it'll rise. Like that's just not how, just not how it works. That's a fantasy land, you know, scenario, I think. But yeah, the other thing I thought was like, it's very interesting. Like I think like this could apply to other types of films. I mean, I think this is specifically good for her type of movie where it's a blending of documentary and narrative because there's a lot of things that like she gets a little bit of, you know, a pass on to some mm. extent. Like, you know, there's like way less like wardrobe needed because like half your cast will provide their own wardrobe. Like there's a way less like, you know, structure needed within like shooting scenes because half the scenes are going to be documentary style. Right. And there, there are no lines. So it's just like there's a lot that like kind of makes this easier for her in her situation. But I still think you could do the same thing with a narrative movie. And it kind of, like we like I worked on a movie that had eleven person crew. You know, we didn't necessarily have it be like a collective or anything, and we kind of did approach it more like a traditional movie. You know, but we, we only shot like yeah you know, ten to twelve hours. Like we never went over twelve, I don't think. And and sometimes it was ten. I think a couple times it was less. Oh. It was more of like a philosophy of the director of like being happy with things and not wanting needing to push so much like into overtime and just being like yeah no we got it or. Oh, well, cut this, cut this, cut this. I'll move this to the other day. We can just change things around. And I remember, I think our last day was like, like we let, we like, we stopped shooting like after three hours and then we had the whole rest of the day to wrap. Mm. So we like kind of did our wrap out and our, on our last day of shooting all on the same day. And we didn't like, it was really like an easy wrap out versus a hard one, which we would have to push into the next day to wrap and everything. But yeah, very good article. I'm, I'm really curious what other people think about this. If they call bullshit on this or if they're like, like us, they're like, Oh no, we can see this. Like this is possible. Well, in other news, we have an email to read on the air. This is called Question, Comment, Thought from Carl Richter. He was on the show with his short film Mirror Sight a while back. And Carl writes, hey, Ulrich and Liz, still an avid listener to the podcast. Congrats, Ulrich, on your feature and its success already. I'm jazzed to watch it when it's available to stream. I listened to the episode where Liz describes the acting class. And I got to say that it sounds like Possibly the worst tutelage I've ever heard for actors. Like the absolute fucking worst that will merit nothing but possibly landing commercials, question mark. Everything I've read is contrary to that, so I wouldn't ever go back to that class. That's all. Keep it up. I learn something new every week. <laughs> Just as a side note, I had another person reach out to me about... So as a reminder, a few weeks ago, I mentioned how I took an acting class and the teacher was very big on the actors not connecting with each other and not being vulnerable and not using sense memory and just booking the gig. 
And so that's what Carl's responding to. And I had a friend, Amy Taylor, also be shocked by that whole scenario, too. So it's good to know that my experience <laughs> only upsets people. Yeah, very interesting. I don't know. I, I feel like I just second Carl. It's like, yeah, who would go to that class and why? But I would love to hear from actors. Like, would that be helpful for, to you? Have you been to classes like this that have helped you book gigs? We would love to know, uh, besides the person who recommended this to, to listen in the first place, because we already know your opinion. <laughs> but yeah, I also wanted to, to mention that we have a new iTunes review, which is incredible. This has been, you know, a long time coming. So thanks to Natalia or Natalia567 from the United States. And she writes, very informative and fun hosts. Thank y'all. Really interesting guests and great insight on distribution, which is what I was searching out. And it's five stars. Thanks so much, Natalia. That is Thank amazing. Thank you. Yay! Yeah, I think it's particularly interesting that she was searching for distribution information. And she found us, which is like one of the things we talk about the most. So seems like, you know, whatever is happening in the ether, people are finding us if they're curious in distribution. So good job to us, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to be like Carl... Or like Natalia, you can send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show like Natalia does, you can leave us a review on iTunes. And finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. And thanks to Natalia Lugasi for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Vrymoot, for doing the editing as always. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for simply being awesome. So thanks for listening and talk to you guys next week. Welcome. Wait, hold on. Before I do this, I gotta do the smart thing. I have to check my audio to make check sure. Check your that I'm not audio thinking. levels.